Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. In the recent history of popular musical theater, we're used to pairing the names of the creators of both the music and the words of the greatest examples of this genre. It all began with the British Gilbert and Sullivan, I suppose, continuing in the United States with composers and wordsmiths like, oh, George and Ira Gershwin, Rogers and Hart, Rogers and Hammerstein, Lerner and Lowe, Candor and Ebb. That's not a typical practice in opera when you have composers like Verdi, Puccini, and Donizetti who had numerous writing partners like Felice Romano, Francesca Piave, Luigi Illica, or Giuseppe Giacosa. There are exceptions, though, like Mozart's brilliant pairing with Lorenzo da Ponte for those three stunning operas, The Marriage of Figaro, Don Giovanni, and Così Fan Tutte, or Verdi's pairing with Arrigo Boito for the magnificent Otello and Falstaff. There was a pair of creative artists in opera, though, who very nearly eclipsed their contemporary operatic world, with works that perfectly captured the fomenting ideas of their age, especially artistic concepts coming out of Germany and Austria. It was the end of the 19th century and the ushering in of a new and unknown territory, a territory that was becoming more and more dangerous as the years of the 20th century peeled away. It was the age of Freud, of artists like Schiele and Kokoschka, composers like Berg, Schoenberg, and Webern, architect Adolf Luce and the Viennese version of Art Nouveau. This pair of artists began collaborating in 1900. In fact, in October of that year, the librettist wrote to the composer, What I feel is more than a mere belief in a possibility. I know we are destined to create together one or several truly beautiful and memorable works. How true and how prophetic those words proved to be. The year 1900 turned out to be the beginning of a nearly 30-year relationship that would result in six monumental works of the German operatic repertoire. Elektra, Salome, Ariadne auf Naxos, Die Frau ohne Schatten, Die Ägyptische Elena, Arabella, and the subject of today's program, perhaps their greatest collaboration, Der Rosenkavalier. It's my pleasure to introduce you to the composer Richard Strauss and the poet Hugo von Hofmannsthal. I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. Something that's stressed in all the literature and reference books about the relationship between the composer Richard Strauss and the poet Hugo von Hofmannsthal is how different these two men were in personality. Hofmannsthal, a Viennese through and through, was raised in the rather rarefied atmosphere of an upper-class Austrian banker whose home was often populated with writers, poets, and persons involved in the theater. Hugo wrote poetry and plays from his earliest years. Bolstered with an excellent literary education, his poetry was thoughtful, sensitive, and detailed, often to a fault. He wasn't particularly musical, so it's rather extraordinary that for so many years he worked steadily with Strauss, producing librettos for some of his greatest works. 
Strauss, on the other hand, was born in Munich and was thoroughly Bavarian. Strauss was more a creature of the theater than Hofmannsthal, although he didn't have the subtle taste or literary refinement that the poet possessed. He loved being provocative, he loved to shock, and he loved the effects of theater, whereas for Hofmannsthal, theater was a form of high literature and grand ideas, dramas written to change hearts and transform society. One wonders, with the basic differences demanded by these two approaches to the stage, that they got anything done, much less six operas. These two unusual partners began their working relationship with the opera Elektra, a project that Strauss desired based on a play that Hofmannsthal had already written in 1903. The play had been directed by the great and seminal stage director Max Reinhardt, who was later to found with Hofmannsthal, Strauss, and other artists the annual summer Salzburg Festival. Elektra premiered in 1909 and is typical of the kind of stage piece that they would create. A heavily orchestrated score with a text dripping with meaning, symbolism, and erotic subtext. Musically, it's very dense and highly chromatic, almost to the point of atonality. But even during the creation of Elektra, Strauss yearned to write a lighter work, a comedy, almost a kind of palate cleanser after the excessive tragedy of Elektra and his earlier opera, Zalome, from 1905, which had the same serious tragic character. Now that his relationship with the librettist had been solidified by a successful experience, he approached the comedy idea with Hofmannsthal. The dramatist was already working on a Casanova-type story of 18th-century Venice, which was comic and lighthearted. So while he was in that area of influence, he proposed a piece that would harken back to the Vienna of old, that produced operetta, Zingspiel, and the tried-and-true comic devices of traditional German comedy. Hofmannsthal said in a letter to Strauss, I've spent three quiet afternoons drafting the full and entirely original scenario for an opera, full of burlesque situations and characters with lively action. It contains two big parts, one for baritone and another for a graceful girl dressed up as a man. The period? The old Vienna under the Empress Maria Theresia. Now, only those three elements, the baritone, who later obviously becomes Baron Ox, Octavian, the trouser role, with a mezzo-soprano playing the role of a man, and the time period of the story existed at this point. But Strauss was delighted, and an enthusiastic correspondence ensued until the whole scenario was fleshed out. There's a wonderful description of Strauss's composition of Der Rosenkavalier by his son Franz, who was then 12 years old. They lived in Garmisch-Partenkirchen in Bavaria, a resort town best known today for its excellent skiing. Strauss would stroll every day in his garden with a sketchbook amongst his roses, jotting ideas down that he would then transfer to manuscript paper before lunch or dinner. Then, at around 8.30 or 9 in the evening, he would sit in his parlor with his wife, Paulina, trying out what he wrote that day at the piano, experimenting and developing the musical ideas. Frau Strauss would often help him by commenting on what he wrote, giving her opinion. In fact, he came up with the melody to the famous trio at the end of Rosenkavalier when he was sitting at the piano playing a phrase endlessly over and over again. 
when she poked her head into the studio and screamed, get on with it, you wouldn't think that one of the most sublime pieces of music in opera would have come from such a mundane beginning. Given the different personalities of Hofmannsthal and Strauss, it shouldn't surprise us that there were little speed bumps along the way in their creative process. Strauss wanted brisk, direct theatrical events to tell the story, and the poet Hofmannsthal held back for details of language, moments of symbolism and beautiful imagery. At one point, the composer tells the librettist, Don't forget that the audience should also laugh, laugh, not just smile or grin. I still miss in our work a genuinely comical situation. Everything is merely amusing, but not comic. The back-and-forth correspondence between these two men makes fascinating reading, as they rarely actually met during this time. So the letters really detail the 18 months that it took to create this work. Hofmannsthal expected that Strauss would cut some of his text and created what could be described as a full-blown dramatic comedy. But Strauss composed music for every word that Hofmannsthal sent him, making the final product something, well, bigger than they had at first intended. They began arrangements for staging the work in the spring of 1909, engaging Alfred Roller as the designer. This is a man who'd designed for Gustav Mahler's Vienna State Opera some years before. His designs for the production for both sets and costumes were beautifully detailed and perfectly recreated the era of 18th century Habsburg Vienna. Although Strauss had been the music director for the Berlin State Opera since 1898, Berlin was nervous about the underlying erotic play in the opera, so when he resigned the post in 1909, he looked to the Dresden State Opera as the place for the premiere. He was especially comfortable with their resident conductor, Ernst von Schuch, who had a formidable reputation in opera circles in Germany and Austria. He'd already conducted the premieres of Strauss's Salome and Elektra and had conducted all the German premieres of contemporaries, even Italian composers like Puccini and Mascagni. The problem was with the rather, at least in Strauss and Hofmannsthal's eyes, unimaginative stagings of the resident director at Dresden, Georg Toller. In an uncharacteristically insensitive move, Strauss approached the legendary Max Reinhardt to direct Der Rosenkavalier, knowing that only he could bring this operatic comedy to life and give it the unerring detail that it would surely want. This offended Toller, so things had to be handled very delicately. At this point, the future of the opera was dependent on the sensitivity of all concerned. At the first staging rehearsal, Reinhardt agreed to remain seated in the hall rather than to take director Toller's place on stage. But throughout the day, the master took the singers aside, one near the orchestra pit, another in the balcony, giving them detailed instructions on how to interpret their roles. By the next day, the entire cast had improved so much that even Toller himself had to give way to Reinhardt and allow him free reign. Von Hofmannsthal reflected later on that first day of Rosenkavalier in a letter to a friend. How depressed we were yesterday morning at that first lamentable rehearsal. 
how hopeless and upset. Strauss made me so sad. The tall, strong, half-coarse, half-refined man was close to tears. Had we not got Max Reinhardt here, we would have despaired. He's unbelievable how he helps us the whole day long from 10 in the morning until 11 at night. First on the stage, then just in a room, so gently, almost imperceptibly, yet so powerfully, truly like a magician. The opening night, January 26, 1911, was one of those truly spectacular, grand theatrical successes that one dreams of. There were 25 curtain calls and a 10-minute ovation for Strauss and conductor von Schuch. There was such a demand for tickets in Dresden that numerous members of Strauss's old audience in Berlin wanted to attend, necessitating the establishment of temporary box office kiosks as well as special Rosenkavalier trains to deal with the numbers of people. These audience members knew that it would be a long time before the imperial censors in Berlin would ever allow Der Rosenkavalier to be produced there, given its rather racy content. The opera then traveled to other German cities, Nuremberg, Munich, Hamburg, then to La Scala with Tullio Serafin conducting. The notorious La Scala audience greeted both acts one and two with catcalls and near riot, especially detesting the presence of so many Viennese waltzes, which it was felt was better suited to ballet than to opera. But the audience quieted down towards the end of the evening, and after the final trio and duet, the response was immediate and enthusiastic. And it's been that way ever since. The story of Der Rosenkavalier takes place in the 1750s in the heart of the capital of the Habsburg Empire, Vienna. It's early morning in the bedroom of the marshalin, Marie-Thérèse, the wife of the imperial field marshal, and she's just spent a very active evening with the 17-year-old Octavian, the Count Rofrano. At an especially inopportune moment, the marshalin hears the very loud and boisterous approach of her distant country cousin, Baron Ox. Octavian runs into a closet and changes into a maid's uniform, now becoming Mariandel, the marshalin's new maid. The baron is there essentially on business. He wishes to become engaged to the young and beautiful Sophie von Faninal, whose father is a wealthy nobleman with estates that the baron hopes will end up in his hands. He needs the marshalin to suggest someone to be his go-between, to follow an ancient Viennese custom and bear a silver rose to the intended bride to be his Rosen Cavalier or Rose Bearer. The marshalin cleverly suggests a distant relative, Octavian Count Rofrano, who, of course, at that very moment is experiencing the rather coarse seduction techniques of the baron. At that moment, the marshalin's servants enter for her morning levee. Among the courtiers are the Italian conspirators Falzacchi and Anina. There's also a lawyer with whom the baron seeks advice on his marriage contract to Sophie. In the midst of the general hubbub, the marshalin glances in a mirror and suddenly sees herself as an old woman. She's not, of course, but given her passionate affair with a boy 15 years younger... 
she experiences a moment of insecurity and nostalgia. She dismisses everyone from her boudoir and in a short monologue reflects on the cruel passage of time. When Octavian returns out of costume and in his normal clothing, she warns him that one day he may find someone younger and more appropriate in age. He protests, of course, but being older and wiser, she knows that this is inevitable. She sends him on his mission as Rosencavalier for Baron Ox. But after he's left, she realizes that she forgot to kiss him goodbye. And regret sets in yet again. Act two takes place in the palace of the Faninals as Sophie and her father await the arrival of the Rosencavalier. Sophie prays that she'll be worthy of the match. When Octavian enters dressed in silver from head to toe and bearing the precious rose, both of the young people feel the stirrings of love. As soon as the pockmarked baron and his rustic companions arrive, all of them being as obnoxious and patronizing as possible, Sophie realizes what a dreadful match this would be. Sophie becomes more and more desperate, and Octavian progressively becomes angrier at the baron's treatment of her. When the baron and Fonfaninal leave to discuss the marriage contract, Octavian and Sophie reveal their feelings for each other, Octavian encouraging Sophie to rebel against the proposal. Valtzaki and Anina overhear their plotting and report it to the Baron, who comes bumbling back into the room, only to be challenged to a duel by Octavian. The Baron receives a scratch in the ensuing brawl, but his pride is devastated. Faninal banishes Octavian and threatens Sophie with the convent. As the people leave, Faninal has wine brought to the Baron. Anina brings him a letter from Mariandel, Octavian's feminine alter ego, inviting him to join her at an inn later that evening on the outskirts of the city. Ox, however, fails to tip Anina for the information, assuring that she and Valsaki will defect to the other side and help Octavian and Sophie give the Baron his comeuppance. Will the two young people finally come together? Will the Marshalin have to give up her affair with Octavian? Will Baron Ox get the girl or be sent packing back to his country house in Lerchenau? You'll have to come to see the opera to find out. That's the famous opening of Strauss's opera Der Rosenkavalier, famous because of what it describes even before the curtain goes up on the opera. It's about three minutes of exuberant, expressive, indeed climactic music that immediately precedes our view of the Marshallin and her 17-year-old lover, Octavian, lolling about in Madame's boudoir after a night of lovemaking. Yes, that's exactly what Strauss is describing through this music, and FCC regulations forbid me from going much further than that, except to say that Strauss really does get rather, well, specific about it. And who said classical music was dull? Strauss loved to be provocative, and what he couldn't get away with actually showing on stage he realized that he could go much, much further by using sheer musical means to paint mental pictures for us. 
Of course, he does this by following Richard Wagner's practice of using light motifs, short, powerful, musical ideas that he attaches to various characters in the opera. The very first thing we hear, blared out by the horns in the orchestra, is this virile, upwardly sweeping idea that Strauss attaches to the young Octavian. It perfectly describes Octavian's personality, as well as the activity that he's engaged in behind the curtain at this very moment. It's a masculine musical idea. Immediately, though, we have this falling figure, the feminine counterpart, if you will, that seems to be attached to the marshalin. What's especially interesting is how composers take these short motifs and produce new music with them. And here's a brief example. Let me remind you of Octavian's theme introduced by the horns at the top of the show. Later on in the act, knowing that Baron Ox is about to rudely enter the marshalin's bedroom without an invitation, Octavian runs into a closet and dresses himself up as one of the lady's maids. He even puts on a country girl accent. Now remember, the very male role of the 17-year-old Octavian is performed by a female singer, a mezzo-soprano. We call this a, a trouser role. So here's an instance, like in the Julie Andrews movie Victor Victoria, in which we have a woman playing a man playing a woman. This is accompanied by a little waltz that Strauss concocts from the melodic material associated with Octavian's leitmotif at the beginning of the opera. Listen. The waltz as a dance form didn't exist in 18th century Vienna, which is the world of the Marshallin and Octavian. But this opera has lots of lovely examples of Viennese waltzes. Why? Well, Strauss wanted to keep the atmosphere of the opera as light as possible. And certainly the waltzes, while anachronistic, they work that magic as well. The other thing is this. As the conductor Georg Scholte once pointed out, Every time there's a waltz playing in this opera, Rosenkavalier, some character or another is lying or pretending to get away with something in the drama that's unfolding on stage. The most important and certainly the loveliest waltz occurs at the end of Act Two, when Octavian, as Mariandel the maid, has written a letter to the Baron inviting him to join her for that tete-a-tete later that evening at an inn on the outskirts of the city. This is the lie that will be his comeuppance in the third act. It's a trap through which the Baron will lose face, he'll have to give up on his proposal to the young Sophie, and it will put Sophie in the arms of the eager Octavian. After the Baron reads the false letter, we begin to hear the strains of this grand waltz, and he even sings its refrain, Mit mir, mit mir, keine Nacht, dir zu lang. With me, with me, no night is too long. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Well, it's time for our resources section of Opera Talk, and when it comes to Der Rosenkavalier, we're in luck. There are some wonderful recordings, as well as a couple of terrific DVDs, so let's get started. Perhaps the classic version of Der Rosenkavalier on CD is the one with Elisabeth Schwarzkopf as the Marshallin. She was a much-beloved Marshallin. Christa Ludwig is her Octavian. Teresa Stieck-Randall is the Sophie. But I think the best thing, the best person in the cast is Otto Edelmann as Baron Ox. He's absolutely note-perfect and character-perfect as well. This is, of course, conducted by the famous Herbert von Karajan, the Philharmonia Orchestra doing the honors. Another wonderful recording is with Kiri Tekanawa as the Marshallin, Anna-Sophie von Otter as Octavian, and Barbara Hendricks as Sophie. When these three ladies meld their voices together in the trio at the end of the opera, it is absolutely stunning. Kurt Riedel is the wonderful Baron Ox. This is all conducted by Bernard Heitink with the Staatskapelle Dresden Orchestra. And of course, the Staatskapelle Dresden is exactly where in 1911 Der Rosenkavalier had its world premiere. So there's a great tradition of playing Rosenkavalier in that town and at that opera house. My all-time favorite recording, however, is the one with Régine Crespin as the Marshallin, Yvonne Minton as Octavian, Helen Donat as Sophie, and Manfred Jungwirt as a wonderful Baron Ox. This is conducted by Georg Scholte with the Vienna Philharmonic. It's an absolutely sumptuous recording, great sound, despite the fact that it was recorded back in the mid-60s sometime, a really, really wonderful recording. There are a couple of DVDs. There's one coming out very soon with Renee Fleming uh, from the Metropolitan Opera. This is on Blu-ray. But I have to tell you that my favorite Der Rosenkavalier on DVD at the moment is with Renee Fleming as the Marshallin from Munich. This with Christian Thielemann conducting the Munich Philharmonic. Sophie Koch is the very convincing 17-year-old Octavian. Diana Damrau is the wonderful Sophie, and Franz Havlata plays the role of Baron Ox. This production is updated a bit to the 1920s, but it looks terrific. It is still in that wonderful Viennese atmosphere, and I know you'll enjoy it. Out of all these resources, I'm sure you'll be able to come up with something that will help you get to know Der Rosenkavalier just a little bit better before coming to the Opera House to see it. Der Rosenkavalier is one of the great comedies from opera, but a comedy that has a number of serious themes. This puts it in the same genre as operas like The Marriage of Figaro and Don Giovanni, like Falstaff or Die Meistersinger, which have wonderful comic moments but are essentially serious works. Don't let that keep you from enjoying it because there's much to enjoy. The music, the characters, the story, the hijinks, and those wonderful Viennese waltzes. I'm Nick Ravellis. I'll see you at the opera. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.